hello and welcome to this week's episode of Ireland Creates, the podcast all about Irish storytellers. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke. I am a communications coach and broadcaster and I love promoting Irish talent. I hope you are safe and well as you tune in to the podcast this week. Remember, if you've um, not done so before, please do hit subscribe and follow or whatever it is it asks you to do on your preferred podcast platform. We are building up our back catalogue as we go along. So please do feel free to listen back to previous episodes and indeed to share them with your friends, family and colleagues. Well, we've been on the go now since July 2020. And there's one type of storyteller that I have yet to feature on the podcast. And that is comedy, comics and comedians. So this week we are joined by a woman who I would describe as being laugh out loud funny. I hope you enjoy this episode. And remember... If you'd like to get involved with the podcast or even get in contact with me to inquire about communications coaching, you can do so on ashlingorourke.com. Hi, Ashley. My name is Anne Gildee and I'm, um, I call myself a writer and comedian, which encompasses a lot of different things that I've done over the years. I think the main thing that I'm known for is the musical comedy act I co-established called The Newless and um, I was with that from the beginning to the end and we toured a lot internationally and all over the place and I've also written a couple of books and been a columnist and uh, that's me. I've got a new show on the road now at the moment called How to Get the Menopause and Enjoy It that I just launched right out of lockdown and it's uh, going quite well. Well, Anne Gildy, you are most welcome to Ireland Creates. I believe you are the first comedian or comic even uh, to feature yeah. on the podcast. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, we will get to how to get the menopause and enjoy it. But just to say, um, if you're listening to this, you should also be Googling um, the, the the show itself to buy tickets. It's I have not laughed out loud that much in such a long time. Oh, thank it you was so much, absolutely Ashley. hilarious and I genuinely needed it. Um, but we will get there in a moment's time. So before we get on to, um, well, who you are today and all of that, tell me what was life like growing up? I know you were born in the UK and then it came to Sligo. So, you know, immediately that might have been maybe a bit different to, say, your classmates in school. Yeah, um, I, w- I have uh, one brother and one sister. And Una is, um, she's younger than me. She's an illustrator. And uh, actually, she was delighted because her artwork was just chosen um, on Grace and Perry's uh, show on Channel 4. Oh, wow. Um, and so that's Una. And then my brother Kevin is also a comedian and writer. And um, so um, I was about five and a half, six when we moved to Ireland. And it was such a difference from uh, Manchester mm. uh, that I really didn't like it. Me and my brother and sister just hated it. We were lived in a really isolated place. Um, and yeah, we really hated it. 
But the whole time we were there, I was lived there for 13 years. I, I appreciate it now when I go back. Was there a difference in the classmates? I remember <laughs> ridiculous conversation. I used to have arguments with my classmates about which was better, Ireland or England. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so innocent because yeah. I was, you know, I, I was like, I'm English. What am I doing here? And then, of course, you know, I actually went back to England eventually when I graduated from college and realized, no, I'm Irish. My, all my references, all my roots and everything is Irish. But um, I do feel at home in Manchester, I have to say. So tell me, Anne, like... I'm already imagining there, like, oh, okay, you go back to school. So you're starting in school in Ireland with, I'm guessing, a bit of an English accent. Um, uh, yes. And because we lived in quite an isolated place, we somehow never lost that bit of northern. That mm. I, can, I can just flick into it. Like when I'm talking to my cousins, it's like I never left. Um, it's funny, I you know, because some people you wouldn't know that, they were born in England and they were people like Dylan Moran. I mean, I think he was 11 when he moved back to, from London to Nace. Uh, and he has such a definite Irish twang to his accent. But I always kept the English thing. It's funny. Was it like, was there a bit of a big deal made out of it in school? Did you get any hassle over it? No, we went to a country school, so it was seen as exotic that we were from England. Oh, I see. We went to a gorgeous, a gorgeous, there was 11 people in my class. Oh, wow. You know, it's really small. There was three classes together, so it was fifth, sixth and seventh were all in the room. I just, you know, each, there was two, two classes in each room. And then for the final year, there was the three classes together. So, but, you know, in my actual year, there was only 11 people. So it was a lovely, small country school. And there was never any bullying or one-upmanship. Or it, it was really a, a lovely country upbringing, you know, really nice country people. It sounds idyllic. Uh, no, it was... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I, I didn't have a very idyllic, um, uh, things didn't really work out when we moved back. So it was a bit of a survival childhood, but um, it's just the people were just lovely. And it's lovely to grow up in a uh, in that rural setting, which you realise as you go through life. So, so rare, it's really special, you know. Now... I know this is a bit of an obvious question, but I can't help myself either. Um, given that you've gone into comedy, were you a bit of a class clown? Like, was it, were you that person that like would may maybe make a joke out of a very serious situation as a kid and, and lighten the mood a little bit? I was all, I was the one, one, I mean, I'm not being a boasty about or anything. One, I was, I was kind of a top of the class person. And two, I was always down the back of the class making sarky comments. I just, I guess I was a bit wild and uh, I just couldn't resist making sarky comments <laughs> always. And I was, I just, yeah, in, in, in a group situation, I just start to see the funny. I just find groups of people hilarious. Um, I even found that when we were doing the the creative and cultural entrepreneurs 
you know, I, w- I was really enjoying the group dynamic of us all being together in that room, like really, really enjoying it. And then lockdown happened. So I should say myself and Anne met when we decided for, well, God knows what reason now, but um, we made a very smart decision, I should say, um, to go and do a postgrad in Trinity in 2020. And of course, we all know what happened in 2020. Um, but yeah, at the start of the year, there was, what, about 40 of us crammed into this tiny, stuffy dare I say, yeah. poorly ventilated room in, oh, yeah, rem- yeah. <laughs> in a very beautiful building, it had to be said. But my God, that room stink. Um, oh, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was a new build and it was so poorly designed. Was- but uh, the, the buzz of everybody being there and um, and most people were were of an older demographic mm-hmm. and just the experience people had. It was so interesting. It was so interesting, the dynamic of everybody being face to face. And then suddenly we weren't. It was an interesting time. That's for sure. It was an interesting time. And I was just thinking back on the course today. I, I learned at the time I was going, is this relevant to what I do? And I look back and I go, my God, I, I, it, I really did learn a lot really did make me think about things differently. Uh, There was a moment in the course when I felt like we should have had some kind of drinking game for every time the word (laughs) pivot was mentioned. (laughs) Do you know, there's words like, Ashley, words like pivot and iteration that I never used before. And uh, I now throw into conversation, well, I decided to pivot them when that wasn't working. So I pivoted that idea and I'm really happy with this iteration now. (laughs) And like then we were all thrown into a global pandemic and we all had to figure out what pivoting meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was definitely, no, it was definitely a worthwhile and thoroughly enjoyable experience on my on my side of it. Anyway, I loved every minute of it. But Uh, I I suppose, Anne, I'm wondering, like, you can't exactly go to college to become a comedian. Um, So what was your, did you have a grand life plan um, uh, way back when? When I went to college in Dublin, all I wanted to do was get away from home. Okay. There was just no uh, other plan. And then my parents split up. And my mum went back to Manchester. So and then so what happened was I went to college and then I suddenly went, "Ooh, life is hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I experienced uh a thing of being ungrounded that the kind of superseded um, really focusing on what is the plan and what do I want to do. But at college, I had always done debates when I was in secondary school and I'd started this style of doing quite funny stuff. And I continued that in college. And I had two classmates, Barry Murphy and Ardla Hanlon, who also we used to debate together and, and, we became known for doing kind of funny debates. Mm. And I think that's where my interest in the comedy, having a topic and putting a spin on it and what you could do in front of an audience began to evolve. But there were no comedy clubs in Dublin at the time and we didn't know any comedians. Uh, So I didn't think of comedy as a career in big inverted commas. Whereas now I think kids see very clearly oh I I enjoy doing this so therefore my talents can segue into that frame so it wasn't like that so after college I just went off to London like literally nearly everybody in my class 
and uh, although Barry and Adel stayed behind in Dublin and set up the Comedy Cellar with my brother Kevin, and that was the start of new Irish comedy. But I went to London and I just got involved in loads of different performance projects following my nose, but <laughs> I did. I did everything arseways. I there was just never a plan. I just knew I uh, I wanted to be a performer, and I I just hustled around. I really kept my overheads low and just did all sorts of stuff. It was an interesting time in London. I used to look in the back of City Limits or Time Out and you'd f- I'd find out about these different um, theatre and art projects going on. So I did loads of them. I ended up actually going to Moscow with the Youth Theatre Company wow. in 1988 when it was still communist. We we worked, we were there for two weeks. We worked with um, the Theatre Company of the Moscow Energy Institute and uh, endless things like that, crazy things. So just following my nose and just trying to shuffle around. This is before the internet when you're just, you're going from one thing to another, looking at notice boards, reading magazines, going, I could do that, that's interesting. But there was never a plan, you know. I hear of kids who go, oh, I graduated and then I went to RADA or I went to Central. And uh, there, they're nothing if not phenomenally expensive. I was poor and rootless and uh, those, um, my working class kind of not money background was very much part of me just not having a clue and just hustling and uh, doing things ways. I think, when I look at it, I think. Middle class people seem to. You know, mentioned oh, there yeah. the working class side of things. Did that give you an advantage in a way? In that you know, okay, you didn't come from money, so you had to work for money. But th- did that make you essentially someone who was driven and willing to work hard? Yeah, yes, that's true. But I did not make a penny. I did. I did not make well, uh, any serious money doing writing and performing which is what I do for the first seven years okay it wasn't really I've been doing a bit of comedy was doing some street theater children's theater this that the other I was always doing cash in hand jobs I was always trying to there was a government scheme in England at the time that tons of people who did comedy were on um where you get 40 pounds a week and it Oh, there was a, I can't remember what it was called, but so many. If you look back, people in the eighties who went into comedy and performance, so many of them were on this scheme. I was on that for a couple of years. Um, it was just hustling around, being absolutely so broke, like days when I literally had no money at all. I like. Literally, I remember once going for a cattle call audition and I got a call back time and I was walking around Soho and I had no money to even get a cup of coffee. I was kind of looking at the pavement, going up, find a pound. I ended up having to sit in the toilets in Burger King on Trafalgar Square, kind of getting my head together for this audition. Uh, Look, it was mad. So it did. It made me, I'm quite money focused and I I like the idea of... um, making money from what I do and uh, as soon as something shows an opportunity of doing that then I really go for it I mean and that is a driving force and I do think that you have to have some sort of fire somewhere in your background to make you do it because it's very hard business um yeah 
and that that definitely is the thing yeah and even to this day it's like there is not a straight line from what I can see at least to where you leave school to oh and you do this and this and this and that's that's how you become a comedian you know it, it, no I'm proper order you yeah. know because because that that is the skill you know that is the skill it does take you, you I do you do see some comedians and they step up on stage and they seem fully formed. Dylan Moran was like that. You know, his whole delivery and his material just seemed all to land together beautifully. Um, but it takes most people years. There was another comedian called Kathleen O'Rourke. Um, and I always thought she really had that. Her voice and her delivery and her wonderful content just all landed together perfectly. Uh, Kevin Bridges in Scotland, he's a young comedian who maybe is the heir to uh, Billy Connolly, you might say. He's such a wonderful storyteller. He kind of landed fully formed on stage. But um, being someone who naturally does everything arseways, <laughs> it, uh, it, it took me a while longer. <laughs> What was it about comedy that attracted you so much? Okay, I um, I know that I was doing all sorts of things in London and I, then I got a scholarship and I went to, I trained as an actress in a, a theatre school called the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. Denise Goff also went there. She also got a scholarship to go there. I guess... Um, one of the things that attracted me to doing stuff in comedy clubs is it was a kind of financial thing. I thought I could make money doing this and then that would be a buffer for trying to do other things. But okay. then what happens with comedy is, and I'd always do, written comedy stuff in the past, but what happens with it is it becomes such a huge challenge and it just sucks you in and you just become obsessed with what it is that works or doesn't work or that uh, it, it just became my thing and um I felt like I never really found my comedy voice in clubs in London I really felt I didn't I always felt I didn't have a lot to say to the people in the audiences there that that they I felt there wasn't a, a commonality or something but I, I kept chipping away at it and then eventually, the, you know, the new happened and then I really found a frame for what I wanted to do um, for ages. Um, but as I've got older and thought about it and I really thought about it during uh, lockdown and thinking about what I wanted to do in the future, I just love the comic perspective on life. I think life is just so absurd that it is the truest perspective. And I I find serious, serious people really boring. I know, I know life is serious and you have to have humour. I mm -hmm. mean, the, the absurdity of life, uh, you know, I, I, it just becomes more and more evident as you get older. And uh, so th that's what I love about comedy. And I, I like comedians. Uh, are, are, you know, I just like the worldview and I don't like the competitiveness of the business and I don't like when people are playing a game of one-upmanship or posturing, which you can find a lot because obviously, it, you know, it's a competitive environment and sometimes there's a lot at stake. So I've always tried to do stuff that is just a step parallel to the mainstream so that I don't have to engage in those dynamics. 
like the Newlers were like that. We just went and did our own thing and we came out of comedy, but we did our own thing. And I'm doing that now with my show. I kind of developed my stuff in the clubs a bit. And then, you know, I'm just trying to do my own thing and not engage with the politics and dynamics of all the comics together. But just apart from that, comics are really thoughtful, interesting people. It's always struck me that comics are a particularly intelligent breed of people. Deep. I I mean, you know, they are. I mean, obviously, I suppose not all of them, but there's a level of depth there, you know. Mm. There really is uh, that I find uh, really appealing. Talk to me about the Nulas, because I think people listening of a certain age here in Ireland will remember the Nulas and how like there was a time there where everywhere you turned the Nulas were on the radio (laughs) or on the screen you know it seemed like you kind of you really got into the flow of it there for a while um how did it all come about we just it was it was me and Sue Collins who's a comedian that I met down the comedy cellar and uh, Tara Flynn who was another comedian who was around at that time so we just got together at a party we're singing some songs together and decided we'd meet and from the first time that we did a gig together it just took off and there was just this feeling that this was special and it was totally what you call I suppose the zeitgeist that you're just going with the ghost of the time and that you've somehow caught a wave and it was at the time of, it was just at the time that Ireland uh, was the beginning of the Celtic Tiger. Mm-hmm. It was the beginning of girl power and um, whatchamacallem, Spice Girls. Yes. It was, it was such a perfect time to like, and we were embracing that whole idea of the country Irish uh, jetting off <laughs> around the world <laughs> in <laughs> you know, our sequined wellies on the Concord. And it, it was just, there was just something so apposite about it. So it was, uh, it, it, w- it was an amazing feeling to, you know, I'd struggled a lot up until then <laughs> doing a million different things in England. And I'd, you know, only recently moved back to Ireland. I'd actually done five months on a, on a twice weekly live TV show called the Jerry Ryan Tonight Show. That was my first big break was getting that TV show. I was playing a character on it, a kind of sidekick to Jerry Ryan. And uh, and then when that ended, I was going, oh, God, what's going to happen now? And literally uh, two weeks later, we were doing the Newlers and it just took off. Uh, and it was the t- it was timing. And that, that's something that is serendipity and look and you really see it in the biz some people get the breaks and some people don't and I really felt that we were so lucky and we we got that break and uh, I I really enjoyed it yeah it was was great those first years how did it work because I suppose for for the general population we tend to see uh, comics um, singularly, you know, in in your own, as even to, to use one of those terms from Trinity, as your own brand, and then three of you together with different styles and backgrounds, and like, how did the whole, um, how did you work together? How did that whole process go? Um, it it changed with the dynamic, and I mean, 
I mean, it's a testament to how difficult it is to keep a trio together that mm. we had, it, me and Sue kept the act together and we had innumerable personnel changes over the years because people do have different goals and uh, and often you, you the people in the arts are very singular and have their own vision of what they want to do um my i didn't mind having i always saw it like my my personality is subsumed into a group and i always felt when i was on stage that what the audience is looking at is a trio um and it's about the overall act and you know, and I, I work with people who didn't quite feel that way and really wanted to feel, where am I in this? And uh, that doesn't work in a group, yeah. but it's completely understandable because it comes with the territory of creative people. And so what I always did looking back was I always bent over backwards to kind of, I've compromised a lot, I feel, looking back to just make things work with the dynamic who was, who, who, whoever was in the group, because I really believed in the group. And personally, I was just very comfortable being kind of hidden on stage, but kind of hidden in the persona and within the group. And I just feel there's there's a magic when different energies come together. And there's something about three. It's very hard to sustain a trio because you have that, you just have that weird energy between people. But it's what brings the magic to the stage. Um, but, it, it, you know, it was difficult. And also we're young and, you know, it's it was totally understandable. It's like creative personalities can be... D difficult and there the were times that it was difficult and and there were times when we were set to have unbelievably massive breaks and they didn't happen because there was just that tension and pull and um that's just that's just the name of the game you know that's just the way it is did you enjoy it oh, i loved it absolutely loved it i loved having that level of success, having been hacking around, trying to do stuff in London, wondering what the hell I was doing for, I'd been in London for seven years before that all happened, before I moved back to Ireland and then that happened. And uh, and we were doing a lot of work back in the UK and it was just fantastic to be back in England and to feel like an, an insider because before that I'd always felt so completely outside everything. And to suddenly be in the BBC and in, you know, in the recording studio in the South Bank, or you know, it was suddenly inside, uh, and it and it was it was lovely. Um, it, it was lovely to have experienced both things and to have both perspectives on on, on it. And um, I, I really did. Yeah, it was great. It was great. No, as Sue would say, she used to say, no, je ne regrette rien. No, I can't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> we used, she used to do, here's a funny thing. I remember her doing that joke in New York and it never got the same laughter that it got in um, in England or Australia or uh, Singapore or wherever we were playing. Uh, I think it's maybe they didn't get the French. I don't know, but I love that. No, I can't remember anything. <laughs> Um, all things have to come to an end, but yeah. did it open doors for you that might not have opened otherwise? 
You know, Ashling, I had a lot of time to think about this when uh, lockdown was on, and mm -hmm. particularly like I was singing the praises of the cultural and creative entrepreneurship course we did because that really made me think about what I'd been doing in my career, and it made me measure up how I had um, perceived what I was doing in the world. Um, in in relation to how you would see it in a formal business way and I look back and I go I just I I don't think that I really took advantage of um of doors that could have been opened I, I think it's because I was always I'm very much team player and um and when you're in a group it's kind of like you are of the group I I look back and I go wow because like we would have started out with like Tommy Tiernan and and Dylan, I knew we we were hacking around at the same time. Oh, loads of people in London too, like really famous comics now that I was doing open spots with. I look at all of them and they had the, like the same level of breaks and success the Newlers had, but because they were on their own and it was their own thing, they could carry that into so many other areas. Mm. But when you're part of a group, it's a really weird thing. People go, oh, you're one of. And yeah. you go, oh, no, that was my writing for 15 years. That was my heart and soul. That was, but you were one of. The only thing is I I just get recognised all the time and uh, uh, from being in the group. And, uh, and the people who recognise me are really, it always strikes me, they're just always really lovely people. And uh, even the other day, uh, I was in the um, post office and the chap there went, oh, you're one of the newlers. Uh, it was just sweet, you know, but but in terms of breaks, I'm just saying that because we were in a group, we just, we, got, we really got to a good level in what we were doing. But because it was three of us and we're associated with a group and you're kind of one of, it didn't really open doors, to be honest. Okay. <coughs> but the way I look at it, <coughs> excuse me, the way I look at it is I I, I look at it um, in terms of all the experience I had because we played huge venues and just did endless shows. And that's why I decided um, I want to I want to do my own show, you know, Um, um I, 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 my identity has been mainly with this group, but I've spent all my adult life doing shows on big stages and I know how to do this and that's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm not going to wait for anybody to say, here, here's, here's the door now. We're opening it for you. I just thought I know how to go through that door myself and that's what I'm doing. Um, that's the key though, like, because... There are very few instances in life where some random person opens the door for you, metaphorically speaking. You know, you have to make the break yourself. It's so true. But Ashley, there was another thing that uh, it sounds so obvious and but hadn't really thought about it till I did the course. But they really emphasise this thing of think of who you know, think of who can be your ally, think of who you can ask to mentor you. And, um, you know, I've asked a few people and... Um, um, the producer Breeder Cash has been an ally to me. I've just, just sheerly just phoning her up and chatting and going, hey, Breeder, I'm doing this, and her going, yeah, that's good. I can't tell you, it's just helped so much in the kind of loneliness of lockdown and trying to get something out in the world 
to someone going, yeah, you're doing the right thing there. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, I've got your back. Not even in a formal professional way, just a, an ally way. And I, I I would never have thought of, of that kind of relationship. It sounds weird. Until I did the course and, mm. and, and did you remember they were saying, you know, whatever business you're in, think of who you admire, pick up the phone, call them, um, ask their advice. And, uh, and I did that. And, um, and I, and I understood from the course, um, that, that that's, uh, you know, um, it's pretty standard in business, you know? I don't know. Do you remember them saying that, you know, you might think, oh, I can't call that person. But in fact, people love to be asked. And um, and it's it's lovely to have just allies in, in the world. And I think yeah. it's like, as, as you say, it's something that is kind of considered standard practice in the business world. But in other sectors, it's virtually unheard of. Um, but it is, it's so it's so, it's so interesting you say that. And I think that sometimes artists, all sorts of artists, like not just comedians um, in the performing arts are particularly isolated because dancers or actors are always used to working in groups and actors mm. are fantastic at networking. Any actor worth their salt is really good, uh, you know, keeping an ear to the ground. But the comics I've known are, you know quite internal people and think it's it's all dependent on what they write and how they present on stage and in fact it's understanding that you're part of a bigger picture and you are allowed to have a bigger vision like a comedian was saying to me was talking about the dynamic by which um comedians go from just playing clubs to them being able to do their own shows and sell a show in their own name and this comedian was talking to me and talking about it in terms of uh, agents and people in the biz pushing them over the line pushing certain people over the line so that you do that and uh, I was listening to them and I was going really uh, it's about having a vision yourself do I want to go over the line and what will I do to go over the line rather than waiting for someone to say we're pushing you over the line yeah. you know it's just a different mindset and I think I the course that we did was very much about that, about taking responsibility, having a vision, looking at what you've got, how you can brand it, who's your audience, how are you putting it out in the world and just going for it, you know. And and I think that some comics, given the dynamic of clubs and it's very hierarchical and you always there'll always be somebody in a club kind of letting you know where they think you are on the pecking order. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've... You know, been familiar with that since the late 80s, since I first did stuff in clubs in London. And so it's just, I just ignore it. But I think some people, you know, they they accept it and they go, this is, this is it and I can't be doing comedy unless I'm being booked here or unless that person says that I can move up the bill or whatever. And I would say, you know, if you know what you're doing and you know you've got something that an audience wants to hear, go and do it. You can do it in a multiple different ways. You know, Gina Yashir did that. She's a, a black London comic who felt that she never really had the breaks in uh, in London and just, you know, felt there was a kind of a racism there. And mm-hmm. she is just absolutely massive in America. She just found a level there. She just went, I know I'm better than what I'm being told here. I'm being pigeonholed as a certain thing here. And she just went off and went off to America and she's like massive. Wow. 
it's amazing to see people do that, just to have the vision for themselves. And the confidence and the guts. and Yeah, but, you know, um, that was the whole thing that um, I got from doing the course is that it just takes guts to be an entrepreneur and every comedian is an entrepreneur, you know. And what was the first um, class we had? It was failing forward. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought that that was amazing. The very first class was this idea of failure is part of a trajectory of learning what you're doing and just being engaged with the world, trying to do something. And I definitely in the past, I would have felt failure is the universe telling you you're doing the wrong thing. (laughs) I definitely had that in my, that was definitely a belief I had. If you fail at something, it's the universe going, nah, shouldn't be doing this. Because and, like, failing was the thing you wanted to avoid. Like no yeah. one wanted to fail an exam, you know, and these and that's yeah. it was all very, very black and white. And now this idea that in order to learn, you have to actually make mistakes along the way. Um, it seems so obvious now. Um, it as- seems so obvious now, but I remember in that first class, I was going, this is an absolutely brilliant idea. The idea that you have a vision of what you want to do and you might fail and fail and fail and fail. And believe me, in comedy, if you're failing, you're going to have 17 people in the wings going, oh, yeah, you're shite. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, that's rubbish. <laughs> in fact, you will have that too, even if you do well. It's so funny. You it have sounds to. an awful lot like being on a news desk, but... <laughs> well, you, anything that, yeah, and you, as as Joan Rivers you said about it, you have to have skin as thick as an elephant's hide to, mm-hmm. to do it. Um, but once you just get over that whole dynamic and don't let it bother you, you can enjoy it. You just go like, that's what I um, really, who's that young comedian who's doing so well? Um, she's just done, played loads and loads of nights in Vicar Street. Joanne McNally. Joanne McNally. I just look at her and she, I just see someone who, um, she was a bit older when she came into comedy. I think she had experience of of PR and marketing I think she had very clear vision and I just admire her so much that Mm. she just knew what she was worth and had a clear vision of how she could play it and really didn't wait for anybody to say tick you're all right we'll push you across the line to me she just pushed herself across the line and uh, plays it so beautifully She's amazing. She is. She's phenomenal. Um, And absolutely amazing. Really inspiring. And it's having such such a good moment. Um, Yeah. It's wonderful to see that, particularly mm. because when I started out, it was definitely, you know, it's always a a, a very male orientated thing and always the male voice is saying what is and isn't comedy, what you can or cannot do. And it's just amazing to see someone, I think, Joanne doesn't even bother getting involved in those dynamics. She just goes, it doesn't matter what I am. I just know who my audience is. I know I can talk to them and I know I'm funny. And she's very funny. Mm. You know, from the first time I saw her, I thought, oh, she's got funny bones. She just makes me laugh. And your comedy, it strikes me that there's an element of memoir in it in that you, like say, for instance, with the, with the current show, How to Get the Menopause and Enjoy It, like it, there's, 
it seems like you're giving an awful lot of yourself to it. And I wonder, you know, when you're when you're sitting down to write this or to put this all together, how do you go about it? And I suppose I'm sure you have to keep parts of yourself to yourself for, you know, your own sanity. But to go to to bear all or at least almost all with an audience, it, it must be a very vulnerable thing to do. Um, I I don't find it a vulnerability, one, because I've been doing it a long time and two, because a lot of the tropes of what I'm talking about are things that I've been thinking about or been doing in various comedy forms for years. And so I feel quite in control of of what I'm doing and why I'm saying everything. And then I, I, I'm very happy with the point I'm at as a performer because I feel like I finally found the energy I really want to have on stage and... It's a clown energy and it's a shameless. I got a review in the New York Times when I was doing the new list. They called me uh, what um, uh, a, a leggy brunette who is a quick witted and uninhibited clown. <laughs> and I think I I am a clown. I I I like the idea of being a clown on stage. I think you can get away with multitudes if you say I am the clown and you can say all sorts um and and that's why i like it and i I love the energy of that so i'm carrying that energy and and then uh there's a thing they say in comedy that uh, in a funny way the more personal you get the more universal it is you Mm. know those things people might be going oh my god is it just me and then when you say i've seen it so many times that people little things and they sound so personal and then the audience explode because it's actually universal. And that is a whole thing about comedy. And I think the nature of, of comedy is, is also by its nature is a quite uh, autobiographical thing that you're trying to, you're trying to find personal detail and make it universal. You know, you, you bring it in and you bring everybody in, but it's not in an ego way, me, me, me. It's it's going me because us. <coughs> Excuse me, because everybody. <coughs> it's laughter's just magic. And to bring everybody into the space of laughter um, is almost, as I get older, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I see it as him. I see it as almost a spiritual thing, and I always see performance spaces as as <laughs> as kind of sacred. I just think it's just uh, a magic dynamic, and I just always try and honor it. Uh, Talk also, to me about putting the yeah. show together. How does that? Because <laughs> um, I and I would imagine a lot of uh, our, my listeners will be in a similar boat in that I haven't a notion about what would go into putting a comedy <coughs> show together or or how you'd even start the process of, of putting Ashley, it together. I'm exactly, I was the same. I just spent so long during lockdown going, how am I putting this together? You know, I was trying to write a show about midlife because I just think 
is an amazing time of life, particularly for a woman, because you feel culturally kind of sidelined and Mm -hmm. you're not getting the casual glances or whatever, which I like. I I feel like there's a kind of weird freedom. And uh, I've always found older ladies interesting. I've always enjoyed the energy of older women. Um, they carry their experience so lightly. So I thought, oh, I'll write um, uh, um, a show celebrating that. And, oh, my God, I just couldn't find an in. And then it was my boyfriend who said, why don't you frame it all um, under the menopause? And so then I thought that is, he gave me the title, um, How to Get the Menopause and Enjoy It. And I thought, that's funny. I can do that. And then I started reading about the menopause. And then... I was trying I was reading about they're doing tons of research and going, well, is that funny? And I can make that's a funny thing. I was it was abstract ideas and I was trying to make funny out of abstract ideas. But that it, it doesn't work until you personalize it. And that's when the character of my mum really came into the show and a real transgenerational thing about women talking about stuff. But discovering all these things just took so long. I mean, I put so much work into it. You know, me and Paul would go into a rehearsal room and the, we'd get spaces to work in in the middle of lockdown. And he'd go, OK, well, let's hear what you've got. And I, I had trouble even saying out loud what I was. I was caught up in my head and the page. And so many times I went, oh, we're going to have to stop this. It's just not there. I, I don't have the voice. I, I can't I can't say there's such a distance between my ideas and something funny that I'm putting out to an audience. It took, it took the longest time, um, you know. And I've been doing this all my life, and I just, I found it, I, I found it incredibly hard. I, the, the way I put it together was, I just got up every day and I wrote, and it was all rubbish, and I rewrote, and I rewrote, and I rewrote, and I think it was the gift of lockdown that. If if things if things have been locked down, locked down, I might have given up and gone. This is not working. But because everything was in lockdown, what were you going to do? You know, I had mm. decided I had a project, so I kept just shuffling around and around and around. I think I'd have more of a handle on what it's doing maybe the next time. But it's I, f- I found it um, uh, very hard to put together, and then eventually it just fell into two logical halves. Eventually. After a million false starts, a million, uh, I, you know, so many rewrites, hundreds of thousands of words written over and over again, going over and over the same material gone. I know there's something funny here. I know there's something funny. And you're just writing it again and again and again. It, it was torturous. It was absolutely torturous. Um, well, and then, and then it came to life when I got into a rehearsal room with Paul and, and we really started delving into the material and then in in the last 10 days before i put the show up we really worked our asses off and it just began to click selfishly i'm really glad that you went through that what sounds like torturous experience because um on stage like uh, one of the things that really blew me away on uh from you and and i think i didn't go in with to be honest with you, I was just looking forward to a great night out because I just felt like I really needed one. Yeah. Um, and I, um, but your energy on, like I was exhausted looking at you. Like, <laughs> but that is, th- that is me on stage. Mm. I've always had crazy energy. And I think the, um, 
the comics I've always admired are quite cool and measured. And I think I just, what I've, the release for me in this show is realizing I am me. I am not the cool comic tune, the cool, uh, hey, everybody, and here's another killer line. I'm a lunatic on stage. I have to move around. I, I Looking back at a footage of myself, the mic is going from hand to hand all the time. I... I am finally owning the energy I want to have on stage because that's me thinking. That's the way my head works. I think I'm slightly ADHD, but I'm kind of owning it. And I'm, um, I'm going, I used to try and be something else on stage when I was doing stand-up and try and be more measured. And now I'm just going, no, bring it all on. And somebody said to me once, when you're on stage, you burn you, you, you the energy you have is that you burn. So I always think, that's why I love performing because it's like you take the energy of a whole day and you just burn, you burn for two hours and you feel so alive. I, I, I don't feel quite alive when I'm not on stage. I, I just, being on stage, doing a show is to me being alive because it's so intense. The level at which you're communicating with an audience is so intense. And you're not just delivering the material, you're trying to make it special for that audience. And then your mind is worrying 100 miles an hour going, is it is that landing with the audience there? Or does she like that? And then you're thinking improv and new stuff is coming up in your mind. And the intensity of it is like, it's like a parallel life. It's, it's just so... Um, exciting and I did go through a whole period after doing the course that we did and lockdown of going should I do something else um and 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 so the whole lockdown and everything has been a lesson in just following staying the course and continuing to follow the heart and doing this thing Uh, do you remember we had to do a pitch for a business oh yes i I, 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 I very clearly remember your pitch (laughs) (laughs) oh my god I i was trying to pitch this idea that it could be a host for corporate events and go hello everybody and welcome to whatever all i remember is like i did it in my usual loony fashion that one of the business people who were adjudicating just went well, that was a bit over the top. <laughs> and, and when he said that, I just I just went, oh, this is this is not for me. I, I just know I can't work in the corporate world. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just one of those little learning moments, as they call them. That's another trope from what, the... All I remember from that particular evening was everybody practically wetting themselves laughing. So like, <laughs> you, you know, it, you know, it... it, it, it Definitely, I, I, I didn't even notice that comment, to be perfectly honest, Dan. Well, well I just remember there was a chap and a girl and uh, he said that was a bit over the top and then he didn't ask me any questions. He let her ask the questions uh-huh. as if I was such a loony that I was not worthy of communicating with, which is such a... A male exclusionary thing that I've come across a million times in my life is like, oh, what are you doing? That has, um, but I, it was a real learning moment for me because I thought, hmm, maybe I don't belong in the corporate world. <laughs> you know, maybe I should just do what I do and just be you. Yeah, and uh, I also, you know, there was another thing that we learned on that course, which is, you know, do your skills audit, think about what it is you can bring to the table that you have this unique. And I mean, I just thought, come on, you know, I've been doing this all my life. Um, I, I do know a thing or two about it. 
I, I can do something good. I, I had this weird, um, I thought it was a country thing of like, oh, Jesus, who do you think you are? I, I just, um, it's a very natural female thing, an Irish thing to kind of downplay what you think you can do. And I just thought, no, how about you big it up a bit and you really try and go for something? During her- it was also it was also Ashley, and I have to say, um, being backed into a corner because I mean, and the lockdown did that for people. Yeah, I think it really backed people into a corner where they thought, "What the hell am I going to do now?" You know, because when I read about in America, apparently a lot of people um, left their jobs after it. I think it just really made people reflect: what are my values, and I have to be aligned with my values, and you. Know, um so it was it was kind of a gift mm-hmm. in a funny way but it, it it was it was a tight corner and uh, but it was a gift too at the the show at the Viking Theatre in Clontarf, the, the the way the venue is set up, there, there was only the one toilets, um, unisex toilets, I should say. And yeah. there were a number of men at the show, I have to say, it wasn't an all-female crowd. But um, when in, in the, the, the queue for the bathroom, because it's Ireland, there's always queues for the toilets. And um, someone was asking one of the lads, oh God, she picked you out of the crowd there now. And, you know, and then someone piped up, ah, yeah, but Anne's comedy is always kind. Anne's never cruel in her comedy. And that is something I think that marks you out as different to not all other comics, but many other comics where a lot of the times, a lot of the time their jokes rely on putting somebody else down. Um, I think that sometimes with, with, with younger comics that can come from a place of nerves mm. and then you just do that. And then with some, there is just a harshness in in maybe the dynamic but um i i i did an awful lot of different kind of performing over the years and i always remember somebody i worked with i can't remember their discipline was more mime or um it was more organic kind of stuff but i always remember them saying if if you're ever involving the audience in what you do your number one job is to take care of them you know and to just really honour them. And I know when I'm in an audience, I don't like being picked on. So if I pick on someone, I f- like to feel I'm not picking, I'm embracing them or I'm, and if they really, I, I really read it and go, if they don't want to be talked to, I won't. Because I don't like to be talked to myself. And, uh, and, and I really appreciate some people don't. And you have a power when you're on stage and, yeah, so it's really important to be respectful. You know. On that a... note, Anne, because I'm conscious now we've been talking for nearly an hour um, and I have a feeling we could go on for hours if, if I don't curtail it somewhat. Um, a question that I always ask here on the podcast um, is all around storytelling and like what you're doing, it's storytelling in a way that is out of, the comfort zone for, for most people. So I'm wondering, what does storytelling mean to you? Well, I that's an interesting one because that was another thing in the course. They said it's so important to be able to tell a story about what you do. And I am a quite an abstract thinker. And so when I'm writing, I would always think, oh, that's, that's a little gag and that's a little gag. But 
comedy I love is actually stories. And then I'm, I work with my partner, Paul, and he directs the show for me. And he's brilliant at narrative and story. And so we've really tried to think about that in the show. And I just think story is so important. And actually, Peter Sheridan came to the director, Peter Sheridan came to the show and he went, you know, it really takes off when your mum comes in and you start telling those stories because they're universal. And it's just the beginning, middle and end. It's just the idea of a character, an energy, a situation. That's what really gets an idea across when it's personified, when there's a situation. Uh, it's something I've really come to appreciate um, doing the show. In the Newlers, we used to, and a lot of the stuff that I wrote was always narrative songs about a situation like... I wrote a song about uh, a girl who uh, they were very poor, so she, you know, had a, a, a dress made out of um, of uh, a, a cow and chicken shoes. Um, but it was a whole narrative, and these all these characters, and th those kind of songs. I was trying to do them in comedy, and they didn't really work anymore. Um, and I was trying to work out a way of how how do I bring keep bring the narrative into what I do. And I just feel that's where, where things take off when, when this narrative of the story comes in because that's where people really engage because it's where they start putting themselves, their mother, they're there in the situation. It's, story's just, it's just essential. Uh, otherwise it's just, it's just information. It, story really weaves the meaning in. Well, Anne Gildy, thank you so much for your time here on Ireland Creates. I firmly believe that how to get the menopause and enjoy it is going to be massive. Um, I, I, I would be shocked if it's not going to, if it's not one of those shows that ends up being in every theatre or at least in a theatre near you soon. <laughs> um, I hope there are big plans for it. Well, at the moment, I'm, you know, at my desk every day trying to uh, book it out and keeping the faith. It's it's quite tough out there because there's been lockdown and there's a lot of backlogs of shows, whatever. But I'm back in the Viking Theatre for another two weeks and I'm going to use that as a, a springboard now. I have an idea of what I need to do. So I'm back there on the 4th of April. So for two weeks. Well, thank you very much for talking to me on Ireland Creates today. Thank you, Ashley. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to Anne Gildy's story. As I said, I have a feeling that how to get the menopause and enjoy it is going to be massive. I know I thoroughly enjoyed the show myself. My thanks to Anne for being so generous with her time. My thanks to you for listening. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Ireland Creates. Please do, as I said earlier, share this episode with your friends and colleagues and help spread the word about our talented storytellers here on this Emerald Isle. Our theme tune is by createschool.ie and the podcast artwork is by clairecreative.com and if you'd like to find out more about participating in Ireland Creates or indeed speak to me about communications coaching, please get in contact through ashlingorourke.com. Until next time, stay safe and have a great week. <laughs>